Chapter twenty seven of Marius the Epicurean, Volume two by Walter Pater. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter twenty seven The Triumph of Marcus Aurelius. Not many months after the date of that epistle, Marius, then expecting to leave Rome for a long time, and in fact about to leave it forever, stood to witness the triumphal entry of Marcus Aurelius, almost at the exact spot from which he had watched the emperor's solemn return to the capital on his own first coming thither. His triumph was now a full one. Justus Triumphus, justified by far more than the due amount of bloodshed in those northern wars, at length it might seem happily at an end. Among the captives, amid the laughter of the crowds at his blousy upper garment, his trousered legs and conical wolfskin capped, walked our own ancestor, representative of subject Germany under a figure very familiar in later Roman sculpture, and though certainly with none of the grace of the dying Gaul, yet with plenty of uncouth pathos in his misshapen features, and the pale, servile yet angry eyes. His children, white-skinned and golden-haired as angels, trudged beside him. His brothers of the animal world, the ibex, the wildcat, and the reindeer, stalking and trumpeting grandly, found their due place in the procession, and among the spoils set forth on a portable frame that it might be distinctly seen, no mere model, but the very house he had lived in, a waddled cottage, in all the simplicity of its snug contrivances against the cold, and well calculated to give a moment's delight to his new sophisticated masters. Andrea Matania, working at the end of the fifteenth century for a society full of antiquarian fervor at the side of the earthy relics of the old Roman people, day by day returning to light out of the clay, childish still, moreover, and with no more suspicion of pasteboard than the old Romans themselves in its unabashed love of open-air pageantries, has invested this, the greatest, and, alas, the most characteristic of the splendors of imperial Rome, with a reality livelier than any description. The homely sentiments for which he has found place in his learned paintings are hardly more lifelike than the great public incidents of the show there depicted. And then, with all that vivid realism, how refined, how dignified, how select in type is this reflection of the old Roman world, now especially in its time, mellowed red and gold for the modern visitor to the old English palace. It was under no such selected types that the great procession presented itself to Marius, though in effect he found something there prophetic, so to speak, and evocative of ghosts, as susceptible minds will do upon a repetition after long interval, of some notable incident which may yet perhaps have no direct concern for themselves. In truth he had been so closely bent of late on certain very personal interests, that the broad current of the world's doings seemed to have withdrawn into the distance. But now as he witnessed this procession, to return once more into evidence for him. The world certainly had been holding on its old way, and was all its old self as it thus passed by dramatically, accentuating in this favorite spectacle its mode of viewing things. And even apart from the contrast of a very different scene, he would have found it just now a somewhat vulgar spectacle. The temples wide open with their ropes of roses flapping in the wind against the rich reflecting marble, their startling draperies and heavy cloud of incense, were but the centers of a great banquet spread through all the gaudily colored streets of Rome for which the carnivorous appetite of those who thronged them in the glare of the midday sun was frankly enough asserted. At best they were but calling their gods to share with them the cooked, sacrificial, and other meats, 
reeking to the sky. The child, who was concerned for the sorrows of one of those northern captives as he passed by, and explained to his comrade, There's feeling in that hand, you know, benumbed and lifeless as it looked in the chain, seemed in a moment to transform the entire show into its own proper tinsel. Yes, these Romans were, of course, a vulgar people, and their vulgarities of soul in full evidence here. And Aurelius himself seemed to have undergone the world's coinage, and fallen to the level of his reward in a mediocrity no longer golden. Yet if, as he passed by, almost filling the quaint old circular chariot with his magnificent golden-flowered attire, he presented himself to Marius chiefly as one who had made the great mistake, to the multitude he came as a more than magnanimous conqueror, that he had forgiven the innocent wife and children, of the dashing and almost successful rebel Avidius Cassius, now no more, was a recent circumstance still in memory. As the children went past, not among those who, ere the emperor ascended the steps of the capital, would be detached from the great progress for execution, happy rather and radiant as adopted members of the imperial family, the crowd actually enjoyed an exhibition of the moral order, such as might become perhaps the fashion. And it was in consideration of some possible touch of a heroism herein, that might really have cost him something, that Marius resolved to seek the emperor once more, with an appeal for common sense, for reason, and justice. He had set out at last to revisit his old home, and knowing that Aurelius was then in retreat at a favorite villa, which lay almost on his way thither, determined there to present himself. Although the great plain was dying steadily, a new race of wild birds establishing itself there, as he knew enough of their habits to understand, and the idle Contadino, with his never-ending ditty of decay and death, replacing the lusty Roman laborer, never had that poetic region between Rome and the sea more deeply impressed him than on this sunless day of early autumn, under which all that fell within the immense horizon was presented in one uniform tone of a clear penitential blue. Stimulating to the fancy as was that range of low hills to the northwards, already troubled with the upbreaking of the Apennines, yet a want of quiet in their outline, the record of wild fracture there, of sudden upheaval and depression, marked them as but the ruins of nature, while at every little descent and ascent of the road might be noted traces of the abandoned work of man. From time to time the way was still redolent of the floral relics of summer, Daphne and Myrtle Blossom sheltered in the little hollows and ravines. At last, amid rocks here and there piercing the soil as those descents became steeper, and the main line of the Apennines now visible gave a higher accent to the scene, he espied over the plateau, almost like one of those broken hills cutting the horizon towards the sea, the old brown villa itself, rich in memories of one after another of the family of the Antonines. As he approached it, such reminiscences crowded upon him, above all of the life there of the aged Antoninus Pius, in its wonderful mansuetude and calm. Death had overtaken him here at the precise moment when the tribune of the watch had received from his lips the words, Aquanimitis, as the watchword of the night. To see their emperor living there like one of his simplest subjects, his hands red at vintage time with the juice of the grapes, hunting, teaching his children, starting betimes with all who cared to join him for long days of antiquarian research in the country around. This, 
and the like of this, had seemed to mean the peace of mankind. Upon that had come like a stain, it seemed to Marius just then, the more intimate life of Faustina, the life of Faustina at home. Surely that marvellous but malign beauty must still haunt those rooms like an unquiet dead goddess, who might have, perhaps, after all, something reassuring to tell surviving mortals about her ambiguous self. When, two years since, the news had reached Rome that those eyes, always so persistently turned to vanity, had suddenly closed forever, a strong desire to pray had come over Marius, as he followed in fancy on its wild way the soul of one he had spoken with now and again, and whose presence in it for a time the world of art could so ill have spared. Certainly the honors freely accorded to embalm her memory were poetic enough. The rich temple left among those wild villagers at the spot, now it was hoped sacred forever, where she had breathed her last, the golden image in her old place at the amphitheater, the altar at which the newly married might make their sacrifice, above all the great foundation for orphan girls to be called after her name. The latter precisely was the cause why Marius failed in fact to see Aurelius again, and make the chivalrous effort at enlightenment he had proposed to himself. Entering the villa he learned from an usher at the door of the long gallery, famous still for its grand prospect in the memory of many a visitor, and then leading to the imperial apartments, that the emperor was already in audience. Marius must wait his turn. He knew not how long it might be. An odd audience, it seemed, for at that moment through the closed door came shouts of laughter, the laughter of a great crowd of children, the Faustinian children themselves, as he afterwards learned, happy and at their ease in the imperial presence. Uncertain, then, of the time for which so pleasant a reception might last, so pleasant that he would hardly have wished to shorten it, Marius finally determined to proceed as it was necessary that he should accomplish the first stage of his journey on this day. The thing was not to be. Vale anima infelissima. He might at least carry away that sound of the laughing orphan children, as a not unamiable last impression of kings and their houses. This place he was now about to visit especially, as the resting place of his dead, had never been forgotten. Only the first eager period of his life in Rome had slipped on rapidly, and almost on a sudden, that old time had come to seem very long ago. An almost burdensome solemnity had grown about his memory of the place, so that to revisit it seemed a thing that needed preparation. It was what he could not have done hastily. He half feared to lessen or disturb its value for himself. And then as he travelled leisurely towards it, and so far with quite tranquil mind, interested also in many another place by the way, he discovered a shorter road to the end of his journey, and found himself indeed approaching the spot that was to him like no other. Dreaming now only of the dead before him, he journeyed on rapidly through the night, the thought of them increasing on him in the darkness. It was as if they had been waiting for him, there through all those years, and felt his footsteps approaching now, and understood his devotion quite gratefully in that lowliness of theirs, in spite of its tardy fulfillment. As morning came, his late tranquillity of mind had given way to a grief which surprised him by its freshness. He was moved more than he could have thought possible by so distant a sorrow. Today, they seemed to be saying as the hard dawn broke, today he will come. 
At last, amid all his distractions, they were become the main purpose of what he was then doing. The world around it, when he actually reached the place later in the day, was in a mood very different from his. So work-a-day it seemed on that fine afternoon, and the villages he passed through so silent, the inhabitants being for the most part at their labor in the country. Then at length above the tiled outbuildings were the walls of the old villa itself, with the tower for the pigeons, and not among cypresses but half hidden by aged poplar trees, their leaves like golden fruit, the birds floating around it, the conical roof of the tomb itself. In the presence of an old servant who remembered him, the great seals were broken, the rusty key turned at last in the lock, the door was forced out among the weeds grown thickly about it, and Marius was actually in the place which had been so often in his thoughts. He was struck, not, however, without a touch of remorse thereupon, chiefly by an odd air of neglect. The neglect of a place allowed to remain as when it was last used, and left in a hurry, till long years had covered all alike with thick dust. The faded flowers, the burnt-out lamps, the tools and hardened mortar of the workmen who had something to do there. A heavy fragment of woodwork had fallen and chipped open one of the oldest of the mortuary urns, many hundreds in number ranged around the walls. It was not properly an urn, but a minute coffin of stone, and the fracture revealed a piteous spectacle of the mouldering unburned remains within. The bones of a child, as he understood, which might have died in ripe age three times over since it slipped away from among his great-grandfathers, so far up in the line. Yet the protruding baby hands seemed to stir up in him feelings vivid enough, bringing him intimately within the scope of dead people's grievances. He noticed, side by side with the urn of his mother, that of a boy of about his own age, one of the serving boys of the household who had descended hither from the lightsome world of childhood, almost at the same time with her. It seemed as if this boy of his own age had taken filial place beside her there, in his stead. That hard feeling again, which had always lingered in his mind with the thought of the father he had scarcely known, melted wholly away, as he read the precise number of his years, and reflected suddenly. He was of my own present age, no hard old man, but with interests, as he looked round him on the world for the last time, even as mine to-day. And with that came a blinding rush of kindness, as if two alienated friends had come to understand each other at last. There was weakness in all this, as there is in all care for dead persons, to which, nevertheless, people will always yield in proportion as they really care for one another. With a vain yearning as he stood there, still to be able to do something for them, he reflected that such doing must be, after all, in the nature of things, mainly for himself. His own epitaph might be that old one, Escatos tu idiu gunus. He was the last of his race. Of those who might come hither after himself, probably no one would ever again come quite as he had done to-day. And it was under the influence of this thought that he determined to bury all that deep below the surface, to be remembered only by him, and in a way which would claim no sentiment from the indifferent. That took many days, was like a renewal of lengthy old burial rites, as he himself watched the work early and late, coming on the last day very early and anticipating by stealth the last touches, while the workmen were absent, one young lad only finally smoothing down the earthy bed, greatly surprised at the seriousness with which Marius flung in his flowers one by one, 
to mingle with the dark mold. End of chapter 27 Recording by Philip Gould